Hello, I'm Bob Gilmore. Welcome to Tentative Affinities, my ongoing series of audio documentaries about composers at work in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Today, I'll be talking about the music of the American composer Ben Johnston. That was the end of String Quartet No. 4 by Ben Johnston, a set of variations on the folk hymn Amazing Grace, composed in 1973. We heard it there in a stunning performance by the Kepler Quartet on New World Records. This year, Johnston celebrated his 88th birthday, but in my mind he's still sort of 55-ish, which is the age he was when I first met him, or sometimes 61-ish, which is what he was the second time I met him. The main differences are hair colour still dark in the first image, more grey in the second, and social status. In my first image, he's still a Midwestern university professor with briefcase and corduroy jacket. In the second, he's become a retired southern gentleman in open-necked shirt and breeches, sipping a tall glass of iced lemonade in a rocking chair on his porch. I've corresponded with him since 1979, when I was 18. 
At that time, I was busily devouring the most interesting American music I could find. Copeland led me to Ives, who led me to Cowell, who led me to Crumb, and a little later, Parch, who led me to Johnston. In Northern Ireland, where I grew up, the skies stretched east to England and, more enticingly, west to New England. I would sit with my record player at twilight, refusing to turn the lights on, listening to Quiet City, Central Park in the Dark, Sinister Resonance, Night of the Four Moons. Harry Parch blew me away with And on the Seventh Day, Petals Fell in Petaluma. Johnston, so a music reference book informed me, had studied with Parch and had written music that built on his theories. The Belfast Public Library had only one Johnston LP, but a good one, the Nonsuch recording of his string quartet number no. two, coupled with John Cage's harpsichord. I didn't really understand Johnston's piece, but I read his long and informative programme note and was hooked. I blush now to think of the naive garbage I wrote to him at the age of 18, but I'm still impressed that the busy man he was then with a hectic teaching job took the time to reply. Occasionally, the postman would bring an aerogram, one of those airmail letters on a single sheet of lightweight paper that folds in three and is sealed to form a prepaid envelope. I would rush to the kitchen and find a sharp knife to open it. The very first one I carelessly ripped in my enthusiasm to read its contents, but I learned my lesson and was more careful thereafter. Suddenly, the world across the Atlantic came to my doorstep. Here was Johnston reminiscing about Harry Parch, telling me he wished the jacket notes to that nonsuch LP could have been longer, pointing me towards articles he'd published in obscure American sources that I had no hope of tracking down, and, most thrilling of all, telling me in different wording than the library books, which I could practically recite by heart, how the system of tuning he used, known as just intonation, actually worked. If he was running out of space, the letters would continue in smaller writing vertically in the cramped space of the left margin. The ideas Johnson described were so enticing that from that point onward, for me, there was no going back. One of the aerograms from May 1981 ended with an apparently casual piece of news. I shall be in Bonn for a conference on microtonal music, it said, May 14th to 17th, and at Ircam in Paris, June 2nd to the 5th. Deborah Richards will play my sonata for microtonal piano. I lecture at IRCAM on June the 3rd. Will I see you there? It was good that he told me that IRCAM was in Paris, because at that time I'd never heard of the place. It was obvious he thought I was more on the scene than I was. I remember showing the aerogram to my favourite uncle, hoping for encouragement and possibly a little travel money, but he asked me only if this character was going to pay my way seeming to view Ben as the leader of a cult, and perhaps fearing that the next time he'd see me, I'd have shaved my head. I went to Paris nonetheless, found a dingy hotel near the Gare du Nord, felt terrified by the Parisians, but ended up meeting and spending a good deal of time with Ben, talking, absorbing. That 1981 IRCAM conference on microtones, les micro-intervalles, was my introduction to the world of musical politics. Ben gave a lecture entitled Rational Structure in Music, playing excerpts on tape from a few pieces. But there seemed to be some dissent amongst the audience. I remember various composers holding forth in the subsequent question-and-answer session, in heated French, about the superiority of quarter tones, and how Paris had no need of these American fractions rationnelles. Or rather, I remember mostly the antagonism, 
Ben calmly explained the nature of the dispute to me and various others over a Vietnamese meal that evening. Johnston's approach to tuning, extended just intonation, has never really been an integral part of contemporary European musical thought. Perhaps in its conceptual purity, it seems too much like a new sort of religion or political system. In the 1940s, following the innovations of Haber and others, Boulez briefly fed us the logic of quarter-tones, although decades later we were obliged to stomach his rejection of them. In the 1970s, we were seduced by ligety into the charms of hybrid systems and the appeal of a non-dogmatic attitude to tuning and to all kinds of other things. In the 1980s, the spectralists almost convinced us of the benefits of a shamelessly pragmatic approach, in which, in certain contexts, pitch approximation is thought to make little difference to the sounding result. What's a few hertz either side between friends? How very different from the Americans? From, for example, Lou Harrison, who wrote quite plainly that, quote, just intonation is the best intonation, unquote. Harry Parch would have agreed with that, and so does Johnston, though he might not choose to express the thought quite so nakedly. But Lamont Young would agree, and so probably would Terry Riley, and quite a few others across the Atlantic. Johnston's path to the, quote, best intonation, unquote, was a gradual one. After a cluster of teachers in Virginia and Cincinnati during his early twenties, and the completion of a master's degree, his composition studies took a more eccentric turn. In 1949, at the age 23, he encountered Harry Parch's just-published book Genesis of a Music, the groundbreaking account of the instruments, theories and music of this American iconoclast in the state they were in by the end of the 40s. Johnston wrote to Parch and arranged to come to study with him in the remote and beautiful part of Northern California where Parch was then living. Parch preferred to think of him as an apprentice rather than a student, expecting him to help repair leaking roofs around his ranch, to fetch water, and to tune his instruments every morning in preparation for the day's work. The homosexual Parch would also have liked the young Johnson to provide some bed activity, but Ben had chosen to bring his new wife, Betty, putting paid to Parch's fantasies. Parch nonetheless maintained his custom of gardening in the nude, and scattered his house with what he called egregiously phallic symbolism to express his feelings about the institution of marriage. The ranch in Gualala in Northern California was nicknamed Azalean by Parch because of the large quantities of azaleas, the pink and magenta flowering shrubs that blossomed there every spring. Photos from those years show the kind of rural paradise that many artists only dream of. Unfortunately, there seems to be no photo of Ben there. He didn't come away with any finished music of his own, but he performed, as percussionist and occasional vocalist, in the superb recordings Parch made of his music, and he learned much about tuning. Yet it would be a full decade before these studies manifested themselves in Johnson's own music. When Parch had to leave the Northern California woods in the spring of 1951 because of an allergic reaction to a bite from a wood tick, Johnston followed him to Mills College in Oakland and studied briefly with Darius Mio. He found Mio an inspiring but disorganised and unsystematic teacher. Occasionally, Johnston's early music reminds the listener of the great French composer, mostly thanks to the occasional flicker of bitonality and a general impulse to engage with jazz in the context of concert music. 
At the age of 25, Johnson landed a teaching job at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and remained there for more than three decades. Some things of his from those early years have appeared on CD. There are good pieces, the neoclassical Septet for Winds and Strings of 1956-58, the atmospherically gloomy Three Chinese Lyrics for Soprano and Two Violins, settings of Ezra Pound's versions of Li Po, but my favourite piece from this time is the dance score Gambit, written for Merce Cunningham's company in 1959, an endearing, if perhaps not completely convincing, mixed genre work, in which third stream jazz, serialism, and a sound and silence aesthetic reminiscent of Webern or early Cage bounce off each other for 20 enjoyable minutes. Here's an extract. That was Interlude 1 from Ben Johnston's Gambit from 1959, played by Music Amici under Charles Yasky on a New World Records CD. In these early pieces, we hear a lively and resourceful voice, but not yet a fully settled one. Many aspects of the essential Johnston of later years are not yet present. In particular, I'd suggest one such quality, which, summarised in a single word, I'd call ecstasy, the ability that Johnson sometimes has to create a euphoric mood, something of which new music is usually shy. We heard this euphoria in his best-known work, the magnificent fourth string quartet with which I began this programme, but it recurs in other works. Perhaps there's a slight presentiment of this ecstatic feeling in the epilogue to the ballet music St. Joan that Johnson wrote in 1955, but the piece, although quite touching, holds back denying itself real abandonment, as though chained to earth by the steady tread of its ostinato bass. 
part of the epilogue from Johnson's ballet St. Joan. There's a kind of ecstatic undercurrent there, albeit held in check by an air of saintly restraint. Compare that with the toccata that ends his suite from microtonal piano, composed over two decades later. Here, all restraint is forgotten, and, especially in a concert performance, the music can really raise the roof. That was the last movement of Ben Jonson's Suite for Microtonal Piano, played, as was the previous extract, by the American pianist Philip Bush from an excellent CD he recorded of Jonson's piano music on the Koch label. At the end of the 1950s, the floodgates opened. In 1959-60, Johnston was on sabbatical from the University of Illinois and spent most of the year in New York. His intention was finally to pursue the application of what he had learned from Parch, and his first thought was to do it electronically. He started to work with Milton Babbitt at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Centre, spending a frustrating time trying to persuade its heffalump of a synthesizer, the RCA Mark II, to produce music in extended just intonation. Eventually, he abandoned his plans, studied instead with John Cage, and pursued readings in Gurdjieff and Uspensky, trying to find bridges between their mysticism and the rational musical relationships he was now beginning to explore. Since that time, and perhaps with that frustration in mind, Johnston has done almost nothing with electronics, 
and has taken on the even braver challenge of writing for acoustic instruments and having their players negotiate both a new vocabulary of pitch materials and a new notation system. The breakthrough works are the Sonata for Microtonal Piano, begun during his sabbatical year but not really finished until 1964, the String Quartet No. 2, completed in November of 64, and the orchestral piece Quintet for Groups from 1966-67, which I'll return to later. With the Sonata for Microtonal Piano, the tuning problem is solved by simply retuning the piano, something Harry Parch was not interested in doing, perhaps feeling the instrument was beyond all hope of redemption. The string quartet, though, requires a very careful approach to tuning by the four players. As you listen to the quartet, Johnson wrote, you become increasingly aware of microtonally altered intervals and of actual microtones. In the second movement, they turn up in the harmony, in sharp contrast to the uncomplicated melodic lines and to the harmonious consonances of the just intonation. You can hear this clearly at the beginning of the quartet's second movement. That was the opening of the second movement of Ben Jonson's String Quartet No. 2, played by the Kepler Quartet. This music represents a thrilling artistic breakthrough for Johnston, who had finally introduced into contemporary composition techniques he had learned from his work with Harry Parch. In sad contrast, his personal life in these years lacked any comparable sense of fulfilment. One of the essays he wrote at this time refers to the, quote, psychological state of high tension that contemporary life tends to produce, unquote. These were, after all, the nervous early 60s, with the Cold War still very much on people's minds. In a text written some years later, Johnston returns to the same theme even more disquietingly. When artists give the world a harsh and violent image of life, he wrote, they are holding up a mirror, the complex, tense, violent contemporary world is not only outside of us, 
it is also inside each of us. There is no honest evasion of it. There can be an honest transcendence of it, if there's first an acceptance of the problem. Unquote. Since he was a young man, Johnson has suffered from intermittent periods of mental illness, and it's his own inner struggle that is the subtext of these and similar passages in several of his writings, and perhaps in some of his music too. It's an area of his life I've never really discussed with him, though the reluctance has been mine, not his. His immersion in the writings of Gurdjieff in the early 1960s can perhaps be seen in relation to this inner turmoil. By the end of the 1960s, he had found a different solace, turning to Christianity and to the Roman Catholic Church. A mass for chorus, trombones, double bass and drum kit, composed in 1971 and 72, acknowledges his conversion in the context of his compositional output. But the quasi-rock idiom of the piece makes a further statement. The use of a novel pitch system, an extended just tuning, although in this case not an especially complex one, goes together with a wish to have the music speak clearly to a non-specialist audience. The implication seems to be that the avant-garde orientation of his great works of the 60s was too inward-looking, and that it would be possible to continue his exploration of an extended pitch vocabulary outside of the confines of the avant-garde. Here's the Kyrie, the first movement of Johnson's Mass from 1971 to 72. was the Kyrie from Ben Jonson's Mass. The rock idiom of that piece is slightly deceptive. It's not as though Johnston, from this point onwards, settled into an easy, quasi-vernacular idiom, or fell into what his Illinois colleague Herbert Brune called the plausibility trap, writing only the kind of music you think people might want to hear. On the contrary, some of Johnston's thorniest scores followed later in that same decade. From 1979, however, comes the work that I feel is perhaps his greatest achievement, the String Quartet No. 5, a set of variations on, or as he prefers to say, a set of evocations of, the anonymous Appalachian gospel song Lonesome Valley. 
This is a superb example of music that situates its composer's love for vernacular musical traditions within a radical aesthetic. From the outset, the gospel melody is presented in an unusual tuning. The tune itself is essentially pentatonic, but Johnston lowers the intonation of the third and the final degrees of the mode by an interval derived from the eleventh partial of the harmonic series, approximately a quarter tone. The resulting pitches are an undecimal neutral third and an undecimal neutral sixth, both of them halfway between major and minor. They're based on the frequency ratios 11.9 and 18.11, respectively. This retuning has the effect of defamiliarizing the expressive qualities of the melody. The song, Lonesome Valley, is about the valley of the shadow of death from Psalm 23. You gotta walk that lonesome valley, you gotta walk it for yourself, the text says. Throughout the piece, Johnson continues to present the melody in different tunings, each with a different emotional flavour, an apt symbol of the ups and downs we experience in the act of contemplating the end of life.
That was the beginning of Ben Johnson's String Quartet No. 5, played by the Kepler Quartet on New World Records. Johnson's music in extended just intonation, music spanning a period of some 40 years from the beginning of the 60s to the year 2000, when he essentially stopped composing, proposes a new kind of harmony, as does the music of Harry Parch. The main staples of Johnson's harmonic vocabulary are two types of chord, functionally equivalent to major and minor triads in more familiar music. The first is called an O-tonality, O for overtone, which consists of pitches equivalent to the prime-numbered partials of an overtone series. The first, third and fifth partials form the familiar major triad, but Johnson's later music often called, in addition, for the seventh partial, the eleventh, the thirteenth and occasionally even higher intervals. This sort of expanded triad is not completely new. It's a harmonic world familiar to us from Debussy, from jazz and from various other sources. But in Johnson's music, it's primarily the intonation, pure rather than tempered, that makes it sound strange and new. The second of the two main new sonorities is even more complex orally, a U-tonality, U for undertone, which is structurally the same as an O-tonality, with the important difference that the intervals proceed downward from the fundamental rather than upward. A U-tonality is therefore an exact inversion of an O-tonality and vice versa. The eutonality is highly complex as a perceptual entity, and we might ask if it's really possible to hear it accurately, as Johnson intends, as a form of expanded minor triad. Nonetheless, there are very beautiful moments in his music built on eutonalities. Here's a passage from Songs of Loss for tenor and string orchestra, which opens with a kind of 13th chord inverted, Johnson would call this a 13-limit eutonality on A, which creates a poignant, nostalgic atmosphere.
That was the opening of Ben Jonson's Songs of Loss, settings of John Donne for tenor and string orchestra, from its premiere performance in 1987. Johnston's work has been an experimental process of opening up an entirely new pitch vocabulary in contemporary music. That there are ensembles now that can perform this music accurately is a measure of the success of that process. Throughout, Johnston has said, he was governed by the wisdom of trying to walk before you can run. His output as a whole offers a progressive exploration of this new world, each work building on the territory opened up by its predecessors. We should remember, though, that this experiment, if that's what it is, began at a time when openness to this sort of innovation was quite different than it is today. The experimental climate in music that we take for granted now, in all its promiscuity, simply did not exist then. In the early 1960s, Cage was still widely regarded as a charlatan. Johnston's work was seen as extraordinarily odd, in need of justification and defence, which is partly why he wrote so many articles about his music in those years. More recently, I put together a book of his writings entitled Maximum Clarity. It's published by the University of Illinois Press and is well worth a look if you're curious to find out more about Johnston. His use of just intonation begins only a few years after the well-publicised serial adventures of Milton Babbitt or the rhythmic innovations of Elliot Carter, but Johnson's public profile has remained lower than theirs, and his path to recognition has been a longer one. Really radical works of music are usually understood and appreciated only gradually, sometimes after many decades have passed. The best new music goes through a gradual but irregular and patchy process of understanding and sympathy. In part, this is because every original work of music represents not just something new, but something being left out, the deliberate erasure of what was previously thought indispensable. In Johnston's case, this takes the form of erasing the traditional mental map we musicians carry in our heads of pitch space, with its twelve equally spaced points. In navigating the rational spaces of extended just intonation, he has opened up an experiment that will continue to resonate loudly through the coming decades. I usually end these programmes by playing a recent piece by the composer in question, but in this case I'd like to make an exception, or perhaps we should call it a half-exception. In 1967, Johnston completed one of his few orchestral pieces, the Quintet for Groups, which received a traumatic premiere that year by the orchestra that commissioned it. Curiously enough, it wasn't Johnston's use of microtones that bothered the players. He successfully demonstrated in rehearsal that he knew what he was doing in that regard and could hear the tunings accurately. Rather, it was the passages of uncoordinated or aleatoric music in the first part of the score that led to the minor rebellion by the orchestra players. Partly because of this, the piece has always been a sleeper and was not played again for over 40 years. In 2008, efforts by the Berlin-based composers Walter Zimmermann and Mark Sabat persuaded Armin Köhler, director of the Donaueschingen Festival in Germany, to program it. Finally, we can hear the piece in full. It's played here by the SWR Baden-Baden and Freiburg Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sylvain Cambreling. Thank you for listening to Tentative Affinities. We end this program with Quintet for Groups by Ben Johnston.